Hello, I'm Derek Wheatley and welcome to episode 65 of the Weekly Wheatley Podcast. As always, thank you very much for tuning in today, for listening last week. Uh, I'd really like to thank Kira Helian because um, she really stepped up to the play for us. We we messed up the first recording. I say we, I don't mean Kira, me. And uh, we'll blame John as well, even though he wasn't involved. But we got it back together and Kira stepped up about, I think it was about five or ten minutes later and we, we recorded it again and uh, can't thank her enough for that. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel if you would, if you haven't done so already. Our live and joyful series on Instagram returned this week. Um, it was good crack. I enjoyed it. Um, we've done 19. I think I might do 20 and leave it at that and then go back to live uh, the Facebook Live. Uh, it's just a, just the problem with trying to get guests for both things and try to level them off. And it's kind of a bit, I don't know. It's not really that stressful, but, you know, it depends on what day you're having, I guess, and what kind of a day. Um, but um, this, is, this is a big show. I'm going to introduce my guest first and then I'll tell you why it's a big show. Um, she is a poet, an activist, and a healer, and her name is Laura Murphy. How are you, Laura? I'm good, Derek. How are you? I'm very well. Um, congratulations to you. Congratulations to me, to John, and to everybody. You are our 50th guest. Yay! Congratulations to you guys. That's amazing. Thank you very much. It is pretty amazing considering where we started, but it's, it's, um, yeah, it's just one of those ones that I like. It's been slowly creeping up, but I haven't been thinking about it too much. And then uh, I realized that it was it was close and we had two guests on twice. Didn't count them twice, counted them once. And then it worked out that you were 50. So I'm really, really happy about that. Amazing. 50 is my new lucky number. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe mine as well. Um, do you know, I had this weird experience this morning and it's not I don't normally run into these things at the start, but I went I went out for a run. And I'm going down, I live out in the country, so I'm out like with the bog, out the bog road and that, and the, the, the farms and fields and stuff. And I'm running, I see this thing ahead of me, I'm kind of thinking, what? it was shiny, so I thought it was like one of those bales of hay, you know, wrapped. And it turns out it was a car down in the ditch, in the, in the like fully down in the ditch, just like a, a jeep, I should say. So I'm thinking, uh, that's a bit strange. Now, I watch a lot of, uh, or not, I listen to a lot of true crime, so I'm like... Maybe you should check it because you just don't know. Like you don't want to be the one to run past, and the windows look fo- looked fogged up. I was thinking, like, oh, maybe. Now, fortunately, I was able to get down into it, uh, and it was it wasn't fog. It was like out, out outside kind of condensation, but there was nobody in it. So I said, "That's for, you know whoever whoever drove it in there. I do not know how they did it. It's a straight road." So they obviously climbed out the passenger seat and went. Uh, so as I was running back, I went I went as far as I normally do in a run back and then I come back and there's this car and a machine and this young lad. And I was like, well, it was definitely him. And uh, but everybody's safe. Everybody's well. But it's just one of those strange, you know, seven o'clock in the morning, nobody else around. And it's just this Jeep is in the ditch. And uh, yeah, it was it was quite a start to the morning. It's quite exciting, you know, but um, some adventure going on somewhere anyway, isn't there? I don't know how you go in there on a on a on a, on a straight road, but, you know. What, who am I to say? I don't even know how to drive. So uh, that's another story. Well, listen, let's get into it. Uh, that's distraction. Um, Laura, could you give us a short history of your upbringing, please? Yeah, uh, I had a fairly average Irish upbringing. Uh, I was born and reared in Portlaoise County, Leash, right in the middle of Ireland, the most landlocked county in the country. <laughs> so Leash is the only county that doesn't touch another county that touches the mm. sea. So that's the claim to fame with well, that in the prison. But anyway, <laughs> so born and reared, I went to school in an all girls school in Port Leash. Uh, I had enough of that then. I went to a co-educational school for, ed- for a secondary. 
beautiful magical place in Ballyfin um, and that's where a lot of magic happened some of the happiest years of my life were in school like and I feel so blessed because not many people can say that mm. um, and fairly like you know fairly comfortable you know usual things that life can throw at people um, we can speak about that later um, and I think looking back now the age of 14 was actually a pivotal year in my life. Um, I did a bit of work a few years ago just on tracking the lines of development um, to see what were what were the defining moments in my life. Mm. And randomly, and I had no conscious awareness of it, you know, I just thought my years were just fairly uneventful, you know, sailed along, few bumps. But um, when I look back, it was like the age of 14 was this year that some amazing things happened. And it was the same, it was 1994 uh, and it was the same year that Riverdance exploded mm. across uh, the world, really. But it was the same year that I started to write poetry just randomly. And again, we'll go into that later, but it just kind of came from nowhere. Um, I also discovered that I was able to, that I had this ability to um heal pain with my hands which was something that was completely outside of my frame of reference um my my myself and my mom were in a crash and she had this pain in her back it was chronic pain that she couldn't get rid of for about two years and I was just sitting at her feet one day and this excruciating pain just shot up my back and I was like oh my god what's that I explained it to mom and it was the same pain that she had and then out of nowhere this uh, impulse to just direct all of the love that I felt for her out through my hands and place my hands on her back. And about 10 minutes later, she went white and she was like, oh, my God, the pain has gone. And then I kind of went a bit white and went, oh, my God. <laughs> but anyway, you're not going to see your mom in this pain. So mm. that continued. Um, and you know I was like I warned her do not tell anybody about this like I'm like 14 like mm. <laughs> um and she didn't but you know neighbors and stuff like that or family members would come with a headache and they'd say can you just put your hands on, on on my head and then the headache would go and things like that um and that was when I was in Ballyfin it was my second year in Ballyfin as well and I don't know I think there was something about my physical location in the Schlieve Blooms that was uh, connected me to some kind of a creative energy. And I believed that the same, the same consciousness or the same energy that was arising in me uh, manifested in the poetry and manifested mm. in this kind of innate natural. Like I, I believe supernatural is based in the natural, you know, it's not paranormal or it's not, it's just science we haven't discovered yet. Um, so that was probably the key defining moment, even though it took me, oh, my God, like years and years after to to even actualize or to 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 understand where all of this was coming from. Um, so, yeah, then I went to college in I had a lifelong. Oh, that was in 14. I discovered WB Yeats and Maud Gone. And they were again, they were uh, crucial to what we we'll speak about later and the imbus and the poetry and everything. And I went to college then in UCD, uh, studied arts, studied English literature, psychology and information studies. 
really only went to study Yeats. Like that was my <laughs> passion. <laughs> Yeats and Maugan and that that part of Irish history. Um, and then didn't know what I wanted to do after that exactly. Um, fell into a marketing job on work experience and liked it. Like I'd never had planned to go into business or anything like that, but I liked it and I seemed to be good at it. Um, kept kind of getting promoted nearly by default. Well, I was obviously trying my best, but it, it was, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, I hadn't dreamed. I hadn't seen myself being in, in that line of work, but it just kept happening. And I kept rolling with it. Um, and yeah, now I work for one of Ireland's best loved brands in marketing and communications. I'm out sick at the moment. Um, but that's, yeah, that's in a nutshell. How nice. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good roundup. I I have to actually shout out to Leash, but Leash has been such a for this podcast. I think I don't know five or six. I think people from Leash so far. So Leash is on the on the leaderboard. Leash is number two to to Westmead. So um, wow. yeah, flying. Yeah, yeah, it's flying. Um, um, I think everybody has been Port Darlington, and I I know Kieran. I know you know Kieran Highland. I think he's. I know he's just from just outside. And yeah. then obviously you're from Port Leash, but yeah, Leash has been very prevalent on this uh, podcast. It's great. Um, so then when did you um, first become aware of mental health? First became aware of mental health when I was about maybe 17. Um, my parents separated and there was a few different things going on. And it was just, uh, it kind of crept up on me, this kind of low mood it was a low mood which was understandable and explainable you know but then it kind of grew into something that I wasn't able to manage and it was really I really felt the weight of it It was really dragging me down um I went to the doctor at that time the GP to ask for something like I just felt I needed something to support me and, and and to get me out of this kind of phase so I could then rely on my own kind of um, strength and exercises and things like that to go the rest of the way. And I asked her if I had, she had something herbal or whatever. And what she prescribed me was this drug called Siroxat. I don't know if, if, if it's even out still or if you've heard of it, but it's a fairly hardcore uh, antidepressant and it was years later on a panorama documentary I saw that it was like it's for over 18s only first of all and then in America the FDA have this warning on the on the packet to say may cause homicidal and suicidal tendencies so and it was then I was looking back and going thank god I had the kind of intuition and the sense to come off them like I was on them for six weeks and I just oh my god I just it it created like so many more problems it was just an awful feeling that it it came over me at times and and then I just at the time mental health there was a huge stigma around mental health it wasn't spoken about the words weren't even they didn't form our vocabulary at the time and um but it was just because I didn't think there was anything else anywhere else to go for support or whatever so I just then said well here I'm not going to rely on these drugs they're making me worse um I want to see what I can do myself and mm. then I suppose it was the poetry and 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 things like that and and following my natural passions I suppose and immersing and maybe escaping to a degree uh through them but that was the first 
discovery of mental health and that set me on a path of of a passion for mental health and specifically destigmatizing mental Mm -hmm. health um in all of my marketing communications work I always had a mental health you know aspect to my campaigns whether it was awareness or raising money through corporate social Mm -hmm. responsibility and I went and studied uh, counseling and psychotherapy as well in NUI Maynooth and and did a a diploma course with uh, Middlesex University as well obviously didn't end up to go on and be a counsellor for various different reasons but it understanding the dynamics of mental health and and understanding the dynamics of just being human Mm. um really is 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 one of the best things that I ever did and um I think if you are human in this world it's 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 just a responsibility for yourself and for your family and your community to have an understanding and to have an interest in mental health and also in how we can take things forward and progress things so yeah, I think uh, it's very uh, mature for a seventeen-year-old to to first of all to make the decision to go to a doctor and because of a, a, a you know a mood or how they were feeling, and then to decide that you know the the antidepressant wasn't for for them or wasn't working for them. Uh, you know, um, I understand that an awful lot of the antidepressants, unfortunately, have that side effect of you know suicidal ideation, and and uh, when you're uh, going through suicidal ideation and you know you're you're having it every day or every every other day and that's thrown in on top of it it's a very very scary thing but it's like i i take medication i i, I have since you know for 11 years now i i still do and it's worked an awful lot for me but there are some glaring you know holes in it that could be fixed up a bit um, and yeah. but yeah like for a 17 year old to step up like that it is pretty um it's pretty amazing really like because it's you know, going into doctor surgery at that age is daunting. Anyway, it's 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 a it's a strange experience for for uh, for a teenager, um. But to do it in that way is is pretty incredible. Um, speaking of incredible, see the link there. Sometimes I I surprise myself with these links. Um, but you you took part in a, an event at the uh, the Abbey Theatre, um, and the event was home. Um, yeah. what was that event about? It was historic, really. Nothing like that has ever happened in Ireland before. Um, It was a production to give voice to the stories that had and and the voices that have been brutally suppressed in our country for over 100 years. And that is the, the voices of the survivors, the mothers and children of Ireland's mother and baby homes. So it arose from um. It's it's been in the news, I suppose. Everyone's probably heard of of them. Had a commission of investigation running um, to investigate what happened over the hundred years since maybe since nineteen twenty two, what happened in Ireland with these mother and baby homes institutions. Um, there's many survivors have been campaigning for years and years for justice. Um, they were trying to get their stories heard. They were systematically abused um the babies there was forced adoptions there was all sorts of horrific things going on at the time uh with continued ramifications with the the you know the many adopted people can't locate their birth certs and they still can't so it's not just a historical injustice it's 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 into the present day so anyway the the 
because of these courageous survivors, uh, you know, fighting for years and years to have their stories heard, the government were eventually forced to have a commission of investigation. Um, there was 24 million euro spent on this commission. Um, there were a few people appointed, like judges and, and people like that, appointed into the commission to fully investigate exactly what was going on, the level of abuse, uh, or the you know what were the conditions like, and to report back into a report that would be available for the public. Um, it took, I think it was six years, 24 million, and the report was uh, released um, this year. And basically this was the one chance for healing you know for for truth to come out for truth that had been suppressed for generations to finally come out and 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 to start a process of healing for these survivors which there are hundreds of thousands of them um but the report was a whitewash of trauma um many of the survivors who gave statement and provided testimony and who re-traumatized themselves to give the account of their stories in these homes in good faith that it would be reflected as truth in this report. Many of them are saying that their stories were misrepresented. Many of the details were omitted. Um, and the manner in which the report was uh, compiled and disseminated was atrocious. Um, it was a document, it was like a document, even probably higher, like academics found it hard to get through it. Survivors wanted to read it to see how accurately things were reflected, yeah. but it was really, really hard. Um, they weren't, survivors weren't provided with a hard copy. They were told, they were just given a link and said, go online and download this thousands and thousands mm -hmm. page document and, and, and they weren't able to access it was really disrespectful and re-traumatizing. Re um, the Taoiseach then issued an official apology, which is so welcome, um, because these women were women and children. Like the women spent their lives being ashamed because in our society, up until even now, it was just if you were if you were put into a mother or baby's home it was hidden from your community at the time you were a disgrace you were a sin you were a sinner like um so these these survivors carried an awful lot of unnecessary shame and a sense of worthlessness and a sense of guilt and this apology was going to be a validation of their humanity and a validation that the state had done them wrong and the state you know perpetrated significant abuses and the apology did do you know it did outline that the state um, was responsible for atrocious abuse, uh, that the state and the church together, who were in charge of uh, responsible for these women and children, that they, um, you know, were responsible for these abuses that took place. And it highlighted some of the abuses. And it actually, Michal Martin specifically said that the shame that you carried is not yours, but it was the government's um, yeah. for letting this happen. And that was so welcome. And I remember just bawling, listening to that and thinking of my mom because my mom is, is a survivor. And I was just I, I, I knew the shame she carried all her life and I could feel it lifting off my shoulders because it was lifting off her shoulders. And um, then it came to another point in the uh letter in the apology where they said um the Taoiseach said 
uh, that it was society that was responsible for these atrocities, basically, yeah. um, and that the fathers of the children and the families of the uh, mothers who got pregnant, you know, were pious and that they didn't want to know them when they got pregnant and threw them into the the, the home. But in, I knew from my case that wasn't that was not the case, and that I thought, well, if the government can disperse blame like that, how can they be accountable? How can they be responsible, and how can they fix it? And I knew the turmoil that my grandparents went through when my mom was pregnant, and how much they wanted to do the right thing by her, how much they did not know of what was the 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 abuses that were going on in the homes at the time, and. Um, also that there was that the, the the church and state basically colluded in Ireland to create this staunch Catholicism that just had this overriding shadow of guilt and shame on all of us. Um, and I did not want that to be whitewashed in this apology. It was whitewashed over as if Irish people were responsible for this, you know, the way the way Ireland was at that time. And I knew from my passion of that time in history that that was not the case, that our Irish people were not always Catholics. We were always very spiritually minded, but we weren't always Catholics. And then I just had so much to say. And I wrote a letter to the Taoiseach and I wrote a letter basically highlighting how um, it was the church and state collusion that the church and state coercively controlled Irish people through instruments of shame and fear to behave in ways that were contrary to their nature and in the letter I got a lot of other things off my chest as well about how women Irish women were pivotal in the fight for Irish independence but when we 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 won our independence you know because of them 50 percent and then when it came to writing the constitution they were literally written out and this clause was written in saying your place is in the home and stuff like that and I got all of that said and I thought it was a letter I thought it was just a piece of writing for my my own mental health to get rid of this stuck energy that the anger was was creating. Did you did you, sorry to interrupt them? Did you plan like did you sit down to write that? Was that something that was kind of brewing in your in your mind and then you wrote it? Was it do you know what I mean? Was it like a kind of a a conscious decision to sit down and write it? No, my conscious decision was to sit down and and get because do you know sometimes when you're angry and you start formulating your argument to the person you're angry with in your head and you're fantasizing about giving them this and telling them how it is it was kind of like that with Michal Martin and I was <laughs> visualizing myself telling them duh, 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 and duh, duh, duh. and then I'm like I had this because I have Lyme disease which we'll speak about later but I, I can't afford physically to have any stuck energy in my system so I realized that this was really crippling me and um I I consciously sat down to maybe write a Facebook post to just get it off my chest um and I got in this flow and literally like maybe six hours later I, I had this letter and it was a big long letter like you know usually when you have you need to keep things short these days because attention spans are like two seconds yeah. <laughs> but this letter I was like I did, I wasn't even aware that I was aware of so much of Irish history mm. um but it just shows the level of ingrained trauma I think that's not just in me as a second generation survivor but that's in every Irish mm. person because then I, 
I sent it out to a few newspapers and it was published in the national media. Then it went viral. Then celebrities started to endorse it. And, and like Jim Fitzpatrick, he's the, the artist who created the iconic Che Guevara image. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he tweeted and he was like, everybody read this letter. This writing is uh, this writing is as good as Heaney. And I'm like, what? So it really resonated with Irish people. And I believe that's because there is so much stuck trauma for, from the untruths and the things that we haven't been able to fully name and fully digest. Like we're still recovering from our, our, our colonization. You know, it, it was brushed under the carpet, like the famine and the colonization. In order to survive, we needed to brush it under the carpet and get on. But we all were, were, were still... The shadows still exist, you know, so I think that's why it resonated so much with people. And then I get an email in from the Abbey Theatre, which was incredible because my lifelong hero since the age of 14 was WB Yeats mm. and my heroine was Maud Gone, not just because she was Yeats's muse, but because of her humanitarian work and, and the incredible woman that she was. So he was the founder of, of the Abbey Theatre and next thing I get a letter an email from the Abbey Theatre inviting me to deliver the letter from the stage of the Abbey in a production that was going to honour the voices of the survivors so the voices that had been suppressed for generations and the the, the voices that this apology was uh, and report had tried to suppress and could have so easily got away with it suppressing uh, our voices our national theatre then um does this historic production something that's never done never been done before to actually read the testimony and read mm. the words of the survivors that didn't make it into the report and i'm just sitting there going how many dreams come true yeah. in this one thing you know and here was me i was sitting i was I debilitated with lyme for two years housebound basically wrote this letter out of trauma and next thing I find myself able to deliver it from our national stage which was Yeats's like, crowning glory it was an honor it was one of the greatest honors of my life to be able to do it it was um when I watched it uh, it's still available to watch on in YouTube actually the whole the whole uh, show the whole performance and and some incredible people uh, at it that spoke at it and you know and and I mean that I don't mean that in like oh the celebrity aspect of it I mean everybody you know the the, the collection of people who spoke at it but when I listened to your um when I listened to your speech it was it was very easy to get up there and be quite nervous I would imagine it was very easy to kind of lose the uh, lose the passion that is in the piece while you're talking because you're nervous but I think it came out an awful lot in the way you spoke about it were you uh, did you feel that when you were talking I was really nervous uh yeah for a lot of reasons but the 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 abbey the stage of the abbey theater like that's so many people's dream to Mm. get in the abbey and I had been mentally debilitated and physically debilitated for two years in a cave like barely able to to articulate conversation with my friends Mm. And then all of a sudden I find myself on the stage of the Abbey. So I didn't know whether my brain would be able to carry forth what I needed to carry forth. And then the weight of it kind of started to sink in. I felt such a a sense of duty and that carried me through the whole thing. This is for 
um so many people and and like one of my lifelong things that I've carried was the sorrow for feminine voices in Ireland being oppressed and and my mom and survivors so that did carry me through but I had it I was very nervous and the day before I just got into a really a state of apathy like the fire that had kind of burned was burning in me I think it was through nerves just left and then I was really worried that I wouldn't have the energy that the nerves would get the better of me and then randomly when my favorite living poet uh Stephen James Smith just uh messaged me on Instagram and and asked me how I was and did I need any support um you know because I was just like thrown kind of into the limelight all of a sudden I hadn't prepared for it and um and then I was able to just say to him you know I the fire has gone out of me now I'm due in the Abbey stage tomorrow uh I don't know what to do <laughs> and he sent back this nine minute message and it's really practical da, 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 da. and I think it was the love and the support and the care that came from someone that I admired so yeah. much um, and the, the fact that it was a man and it was the masculine because what we were doing here was really bringing out and supporting the feminine and mm. I knew that was the level that he was coming in to support because he really supported the, the work and, and the the activism aspect of it and that was he he really helped me and and i was able to put those practical things into action because i was deep in the emotion and i was very much leaning on my own spirituality and all that kind of stuff for the strength but when when you need to do something practical like get onto the abbey you just need to maybe come out of that and get into the masculine yeah. area of structure and form and delivery and then just as i was going on the stage i remembered um maud gone and that she was on that stage as Kathleen Nihulhan, who was uh, the main character in a play that Yeats wrote about a sovereign and free Ireland. Mm-hmm. And Kathleen Nihulhan uh, symbolised a free Ireland. And I just said, would Maud gone be nervous here? Like, you know, this <laughs> is like nerves are about you. This is not about you. And I went on and I just felt so happy and so grateful and so full of responsibility and it was one of the best moments of my life I'm getting emotional now even thinking about it it's brilliant yeah yeah um I I, uh yeah you can't help but be moved by by the statements um by your own obviously but Mm -hmm. some of the other statements that I that I listened to or, or I should say watched on YouTube and and that's why I think people should definitely go back and even if they don't have time for the three hours go in and, you know, in and out and dip in and out a few of them because I think it's, uh, it's like you said, it's a very historic thing that happened. And um, uh, those those women that got up on that stage and talked about what they talked about, like, it's uh, it's heartbreaking, but it's quite inspiring at the same time. And I think, you know, to find that balance is very, very difficult. Um, you spoke about empathy uh, or lack thereof, I should say, really. In, in, the sta- in the report, the statement on the report the government made, um, where where do you think the empathy was lacking in that? God, where do you start? Like, maybe I'm naive, but, you know, I like to think that the, the government did want to do the right thing. Like, you know, individually, I'm finding it hard to pick out, you know, anyone in the government who's a bad person, you yeah. know. Um, I do, be, well, and I might be naive, I don't know, but... Um, 
the overall way it was handled was just completely devoid of empathy. Um, first of all, if you're going to engage people who have been deeply traumatized and are still going through a process of trauma, you need to understand that you're dealing with with very sensitive uh, issues and, and very sensitive emotions. And when the government engaged them for to partake in the commission, they had no real grasp or concept of what they were going through at that point. And that was kind of you could nearly forgive that if the if the truth was going to be published. But then so they let them on. There was no support, even counselling or anything around that time. And, they, you know, like even myself and my mom, we weren't even aware that it was happening. So they didn't even make a huge effort to even mm-hmm. I think there was 500 out of like 100,000 that gave evidence. So, it's, you know, um, but then when the report was published, the words, the language in the report was absolutely astounding, like totally devoid of empathy. Um it was really juvenile, basic, uh, unprofessional language um, that it was almost like saying, look, we're just taking a box here. Like, it, you know, um, we're not going to even paint the picture properly of, of, of what happened. And then so that's one thing that it was a really disrespectful um, delivery of, of this, of their stories. And then it was the misrepresentation of truth. Um, if a person doesn't feel listened to, so so these these survivors all of their lives have so many of them have never even told a soul that this happened, and I'm conscious that there's so many out there haven't even told their husbands or their close family, and their voices have been oppressed and silenced. And then for this one thing that was supposed to be the opposite of that to continue to suppress their voices and even worse, misrepresent and lie about what they said. Like, I can't even tell you the, 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 how that will re-traumatise, you know, it, the effect is awful. And it's just when a person doesn't feel listened to, it, it invalidates their humanity. And this report was a manifestation of how much they were not listened to for um, 100 years how much they were oppressed and how much today they're still at this time of healing. This was a, an opportunity for healing that they're still being oppressed. And the interviews and everything around the mother and baby homes, like, you know, Roderick O'Gorman, he's a minister for children and Michal Martin, they were, they must've been trying to be empathetic, but just the language that they used, it was cold, it was callous, it was uh, clinical. And then to, to have this, uh, whole dialogue around um suppressing the archives and and locking the archives Mm. away under lock and key sealing the records for 30 years like that whole debacle that erupted it was like where's your humanity like Mm. empathy is one of the most basic values or basic necessities for being a human and if you lack empathy in any endeavor like you know, it's going to be a shit fest. But if you lack empathy and this, probably the, one of the darkest periods in Irish history since the famine or the colonization, you know, like if you're going to deal with that and you're dealing with living survivors without empathy, what do you think is going to happen? Like, you know, um, um, I, I do uh, like like what you're saying there about empathy. It is like it is one of those kind of basic things that we should all know about. But but there's there is something lost in us 
when it comes to empathy where uh, people don't quite understand it and they, they mix it up with sympathy. But another thing that I that kind of strikes me about that, the, you know, the event and the conversations around it, this seems like people don't really understand what trauma is. It's like they they calculate trauma differently than they should, you know, they, and I, and this goes across the board. This is talking about what the mother and baby homes, obviously, but even talking about mental health, all those kind of things that we, we calculate in a way, like if we don't understand the trauma and I'll never understand the trauma that people um, in the mother and baby homes had, I, I just, I won't be able to understand it, but that doesn't mean that you can kind of um, be clinical like the government were um, in the, in the sense of uh, empathy and almost like, uh, seeing the trauma as something less than what it was, which is, which is pretty uh, scummy. That's probably not a good word to use, but it's certainly something that really would kind of disgust you a little bit. You know that idea, and it it seems to me from what you're telling it, it it's there's there's a clinical nature to this report, or and the the statement they brought out about this report. Yeah, exactly. And like, I mean, empathy. Empathy should be t- taught in schools. Like I was very lucky in, in when I studied counselling and psychotherapy. Um, basically, the most important parts of those studies or how, of, of being a counsellor is what's called uh, the three core principles of person-centred therapy, which is developed by a guy called Carl Rogers. And they like for you to have um, to be able to offer some kind of healing or to be able to offer support for anyone going through anything in their mental health you need to have three things present one of those is empathy the other is positive regard for the person unconditional positive regard and non-judgmentalism they're the three basic things and in my opinion they're the three basic things that you need to be a functional good human in Mm. life well and I was lucky enough to come across that in my studies and counselling, but these are the things that should be taught in schools because like um, empathy is so lacking in just in our society now, you know, from the government, the ignorant display of lack of empathy at that level, but that filters down through, Mm. through so much, you know, and it's because I suppose it's it's so simple. When things are so simple, they're overlooked, you know, and empathy is very basically the ability to see from another person's perspective or the ability to be able to relate to what they're feeling. It's not necessarily, as you say, sympathy. It's not like coming from a, a place of feeling sorry for um, it's just to be able to open your heart to connect with their experience of being human. And sometimes that they might be experiencing human on the joyful side of things, or they might be experiencing being human on the suffering side. And like we are a tribal species, you know, community for us is everything. And when a person feels listened to and when a person feels that another person is connecting in with their present experience, healing just happens yeah. in that resonance, literally. And, and there's even a name for it in counselling. Um, it's, it's like it's the third presence or something that, that it's called. It's just this when two people relate in that relationship of love and empathy that in itself can provide healing. And it's so important. And if we were to progress as a species, 
empathy is the number one thing that we can engage before anything else, before the science, before innovation, before everything, because empathy will inform all of that, will inform science to go in the right direction. You know, Einstein discovered uh, E equals MC squared, but then we got the atomic bomb. What we need to happen is for people to have empathy so that when the next E equals MC MC squared is discovered, we can, you know, uh, understand what the science is around hands-on healing, for example, Mm. whatever. So empathy is is so important. Here, here. I I could not have put it better. Um, (laughs) Let me get in the the advert here and we'll we'll, we'll see how we get on with this. This should be interesting. Um, One of these days I'm going to record this and just start putting it in the middle of the episodes. But until then, okay. Fusion Training Centre, Monksland Athlone. A place to train in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, kickboxing, martial arts and CrossFit. A great atmosphere with experienced coaches uh, and a real sense of community. If you want to join the team, find us on Facebook at Fusion Training Centre or drop in for a chat. Fusion Training Centre, train like a warrior. Hopefully that'll be open again in May and we can get some some training in. Uh, That would be nice. We'll see though. Don't, carry, don't get carried away just yet. But now we are, I'm, I'm going into the deep end, folks, into a place, my favorite swimming pool, the lack of knowledge pool. And uh, I'm going in head first here, right? So, Laura, can you tell us about what IMBAS is? You paused. Sure. Um, IMBAS is the, in Irish now currently, IMBAS is the word for inspiration, but not many people know that. There's another word for inspiration. I think it's inspiroid, which is fairly one-dimensional word. But IMBAS is, comes from the old Irish uh, concept of imbasferosne, which means divine inspiration or knowledge which illuminates. And it was actually a technique of the ancient poets of Ireland so wisdom tradition where the poets were um, held in the highest esteem in our community in our society they were actually next to the king they were a massive support to king in the king's ability to be able to lead in right relationship with the land and right relationship with its people poet actually was the person who could provide that level of healing for the 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 king and to provide um services of prophecy and truth telling and uh all the rest of it so imbus was actually imbus for Osne was a technique that the poets of ireland used to use to access these higher states of consciousness so that they could um draw down the poetic inspiration and draw down um words and poems that was not that were not just ordinary poems um that were poetry imbued with power um and that would be the power to heal heal if the people there was divisions within the people if there was looming war if the land wasn't flourishing the poets used to access this state this higher state of consciousness and then I suppose, disengage the rational mind and disengage the, you know, the subjectivity of it and connect into something greater within themselves um, and universally and then bring down these words and these this poetry that was going to help in some way to guide the people of the time or guide the leaders in doing the right thing and and 
our ancient mythology speaks an awful lot about it. Um, no, not an awful lot. If you have eyes to see and ears to listen, you've got Imbus in our mythology. Hmm. But it was... It's been suppressed, again, like the female voices throughout our history. Imbus is something that was suppressed through the years. And when St. Patrick came to Ireland um, and Roman Catholicism came to Ireland, St. Patrick banned the techniques for accessing Imbus. And since then, it's kind of been written out of our history. So while there are references to it in history, like Fionn McCool, for example, he got Imbus when he uh, caught the Salmon of Knowledge. And the wisdom that's in that that the, his wisdom is imbus but we we never learned it as imbus we just mm. learned that he got the knowledge of all things um and uh so when when roman catholicism came imbus the techniques for imbus was banned and there's very very little written about it apart from those references that you kind of have to go looking to find and anything that is written is kind of is written with the patriarchal bias so it's written with the biases of the Christian monks at the time and they were obviously making a concerted effort to um, move us out of our indigenous ways and into the the either the colonial way the empire or their new religion that they were bringing in so Imbus has been lost like Imbus our conscious knowledge of Imbus has been lost and there's very little written about it apart from maybe some commentary on those uh, biased writings that exist in our ancient manuscripts in the medieval manuscripts, mm. um, you know, but we're, th- this is a concept that's going back thousands and thousands of years and it was an oral tradition. So that not only was it not written down, but it was forcibly suppressed and lost but I believe that Imbus has always existed in our in, in our land, this, the, 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 the energy of it within our landscape and within us as a people. Mm. Um, like Irish music and Irish literature, like, you know, we over we overachieve in comparison to kind of, you know, our, our population. And there's there you know, everyone would agree that there is a certain type of magic um, in Irish music, in Irish literature that really captures the hearts and imaginations of everyone around the world. And my sense is that it's it's this innate sense of of imbus that that's that's still within our epigenetic memory, you know, that is within our spirit, that is within our DNA, you know, you know colonizers uh can can suppress so much but you know um they broke our spirit but i i believe they didn't truly we didn't truly lose our spirit and that's it's the energy of imbus i think that we subconsciously have that really makes magic of our poetry and magic of our music and i had this um random experience of imbus a spontaneous experience in 2013 that got me to understand what it is and ever since then I've been on a uh it's just been my passion to to understand it and to retrieve it to go back into the trenches of our history and try and figure out where it was suppressed what can we use of that to to really inform our how to ignite our imagination and how to creative flow and 
I discovered that all these disparate things and these random passions I had through my life actually all connected back into Imbus. You know, I believe Yeats had the knowledge of how to access Imbus and he spoke about it uh, in different, quite more coded ways in, in his in his writings and um various other like and even the healing the, the healing energy a lot of it can be explained in 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 what I'm learning about imbus and stuff stuff like that as well and what we have the benefit of now is science and there's so much in quantum physics and there's so much in the studies that that scientists are doing around creativity and around all of that that actually corroborate what like the poets knew so what I love to do or what I'm in the process of, of of trying to do now is to marry the new and the old and to try and revive our under, our conscious understanding of Imbus. I believe it's always there innately in all of us, but to just put put words to it and put mm. conscious understanding and and have it available. It's very simple. It's not anything that's highfalutin. You know, there's, there's various things you can do to to really bring it on in you and that's how I wrote the letter was was accessing mm. that state of imbus um and I just want to make that available and to and to say you know fuck you colonizers and fuck you empire like you can't take this away from us and yeah. bringing it back yeah um, and, and, and rightly so yeah rightly so and and I suppose then because because you mentioned uh poetry there and I, I suppose I want to know when that became something that was very important to you because uh, we were just chatting before we started recording and poetry in schools, well, uh, you know, it wasn't the most exciting and attractive, uh, you know, form, I suppose. No, it wasn't. Um, no, like, I mean, it was it, it was just another subject and it wasn't well, from, from, it wasn't taught in any way that was like inspiring yeah. and very factual and and like poetry is like teaching poetry factually is the last thing like you know there's a certain amount of rationality you have your techniques and your onomatopoeia and your alliteration grand but like which the old poets of Ireland had like they had to study for 12 years the techniques the the rational techniques but that was only so that they could facilitate this downpour of higher consciousness to put through this form and poetry in schools you know just doesn't go there like you know even even in the 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 therapeutic aspect of poetry like teenage teenageville is a tough terrain to navigate like it's really it's a tough part of your life you know and if we have the opportunity to study poetry when we're teenagers how can you do it without going near the therapeutic value of reading poetry or of writing poetry and poetry for me has gotten me through some really, really tough times. Like, you know, if you listen to Rudyard Kipling, like if, you know, or um, even a sunscreen song. Like I play that like, I don't know if you know it. It was. Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I still play that random. Like, do you know, poetry doesn't have to be like Nobel Prize. Do you know what I mean? If you could have one or two lines. um on the tip of your tongue that you can just access you know but then more importantly it's it's the opportunity for teachers and the education system is to spark that creativity in their students and it was Yates that said education is not the filling of a pail but the lighting of a fire whereas our education just drums education system just drums things and just calls on people's memory you know and 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 memory is a very different thing to creation and I was very lucky in 
1994 in Ballyfin. And Ballyfin, incidentally, is the Irish name is Balia Fionn. So it was actually where I went to school was the place in the Sleeve Blue Mountains where Fionn McCool was born. So oh, I, I found that fascinating. So it was like um, our English teacher asked us to write a poem on anything that like anything that we had passion about. So that was the first poem I ever wrote and it was about the moon and it was a very simple, you know, you're magical and, you know, but the second one then, the second and the third ones just came spontaneously, not from her asking. Like, I think she was a catalyst that made me realize, oh my God, I can put the pen to paper. And now she wasn't, she didn't say at the time about the therapeutic value or anything, but even just her asking me actually spurred me in my own spare time then when I was, I carried an awful lot of sadness um, because of the pain that my mom carried. And it wasn't that she, she was, she's, she's a hero. Like she, she gets on with her life and she's really, she's really positive and she didn't get consumed by her pain, but I was a very empathetic person and highly, highly sensitive, highly intuitive. So I could just feel the pain that she carried. Um, from from her experience and my next two poems I remember writing in my room were about her experience and were about one was called uh, the forgotten mother and the other one was called the pain of a river and that was about like it was very basic poems you know but it was the pain of a river specifically was about Oh, my mom and me were two rivers and, and where one river had a big load. Now, when I came along, I was able to take half of her load. Like I consciously, purposely wanted to take her pain from her mm. so that she didn't have to carry it all. Um, and I found huge um, healing in that for myself, huge healing in that writing. And I just stayed writing then. Um, I never called myself a poet like until really really recently I, I don't know it's a whole other like kind of a thing around unworthiness or of mm-hmm. owning your own abilities or whatever but it was just um it was innate in me like the healing and the poetry was just innate like some people are singers I would love to be a singer I can't sing for shit <laughs> but I can heal with my hands and I can uh, write poetry and I yeah. just did that um all the way through my life yeah um the thing about poetry like it's it's funny we talk about like in schools because it it didn't appeal to me at all in school even like something like Shakespeare was all right I didn't mind it as long as someone was there to explain you know the the old you know text to me but the poetry just didn't I didn't have any much interest in it and then I kind of was a a really into music like and I, I was really into lyrics and started appreciating them as outside of having like some chords around them they were they were poems you know and i was reading the autobiography of um john cooper clark the other day and i no, well about a month ago and i realized that that's my type of poetry it's the same as music i mean you like you might like the beatles you might hate the beatles it's that's fine that's just your own kind of thing but i realized like john cooper clark's kind of every every man kind of poetry you know street poetry as such mm-hmm. it's just my kind of thing and 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 the mm-hmm. old you know the old irish or english poets whoever um, just don't kind of, you know, work for me. And that's that's fine. But it's good to dip in, I think. And 
you know, you talk, the people talk about uh, Bob Dylan or Neil Young and all these these amazing songwriters. Like they are just poems, just put to music. And you know, I think I think that's what you realize. Exactly, and um, it's a pity that we weren't kind of directed, like you know, or told that at that young yeah. age. Because I love music too. Like you know, age fourteen, I was listening to Pearl Jam and Nirvana, and even like Leonard Cohen. And it's only recently that I realized that Leonard Cohen was a poet before he right. ever was a singer. Like, you know, melody was kind of secondary uh, to his. And, and what a poet mm. he was like. And Imelda May now has a new album out. Mm. And the lyrics, like her, this, the musicality of and the production and all of that is incredible. And it really fires me up. It fires everybody up that I've spoken to. But if you even take the music away and read the lyrics, like they are incredible. And it's like the, there's a woman now who just has a imbus pouring out through every cell in her, her, her body. And the thing about imbus is it's it multiplies so if you experience someone else a piece of someone's work that's come from imbus it will spark it in you and like her songs there's one song she has that's it's called breathe it's written from the perspective of a tree okay and yeah and it reminds us like that we would not exist without trees we breathe out what they give us and then vice versa you know and again it links us to our ancient irish past where trees were honored and they were sacred and she's another song called uh, Made to Love, which is like, again, it's all about that empathy. It's it's pure rock and roll, like the melody and the guitar and the drums are just like, I, I'm just rock and dance around the house listening to it. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant, though, you know, to find that yeah. and, and, and find yeah. that kind of that what you're talking about, like the Imus, because from what I'm getting, uh, you know, back from it is, you know, that there is um it's more than just, you know, just this inspiration and this what what you write, but what you kind of give back, like, and that that's that's huge. And all this, um, you know, we obviously grew up around the same time. So we would have been listening to our in the same syllabus as in English and the same poems. But I was listening to Nirvana when I was around that age and like back in, in 94. And, that, and I remember like I, I didn't really pay attention to a lot of the lyrics because they seem to be like washed over with this, the noise and the, you know, the sound. And then when you take them out, actually the really good lyrics, you know, they're quite dark, but they're still just as good as something that's bright and poppy and whatever it is. So yeah, like Imelda May, great, amazing voice. Anyway, I did see you put up something about her new album coming out as well. And I'm going to have to check it out, especially the one breed, because you, you also mentioned that. Um, yeah. So like, there's another thing I was I was reading about. So the, the the Celtic reconstructionist paganism, right? That's I had to read that because I would never remember that, right? So they say that that's a reason that Imbas is coming, into, you know, into modern Ireland. We'll say so, you know, uh, it was as you, you I think you said it was never lost anyway. But you know, almost like uh, making us all aware of it. Um, you know, what? Why do you think it's so important for it to be here and for people to know about it? It's so important because if we, again, it's like it's 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 that colonization hangover, right? You know, we ne- I don't believe that we ever full fully grieved or mourned for the most important things that were lost throughout famine and throughout colony and all of that. Um, and but our spirits know, like this is such a big part of being Irish because it comes up from the life force in the land and it comes it comes from our 
our DNA, our genes, this imbus. And if we are unconscious of it, it can kind of go into the shadow a bit. And it just feels like there's a block, you know, a block to the essence of who you are. But when when it's brought back into conscious awareness, both is a thing that was lost, but now you know, even because a lot of people aren't conscious that this thing was taken away from it. That's the thing I couldn't believe when I started to research Imbus. So little is written about it. And like St. Patrick banished the snakes, right? There was never snakes in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Where are they going with the snakes? But like the this the Imbus in other traditions, it's not called Imbus, mm-hmm. but in my understanding, um, this life force energy can call it chi or can call it prana is symbolized or kundalini is symbolized with as a serpent a coiled serpent um and ae he was a yates's best friend um he was a mystic and a writer um and he he believed that this serpentine force um was was the creative energy and was the snakes that the druidic force that that saint patrick banished um and we need to understand that that's a history that's been suppressed and we need to to just bring back in the knowledge of the suppression but more importantly so we can kind of take that take it out of the shadow and then but more importantly really consciously learn how to connect with this creative force or this generative force because if you know what's written as well um i suppose more subliminally in the writings of ae and stuff like that is that by taking our knowledge of our our life force away or our connection to nature what um the colonizers and 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 the roman catholics did was was we lost our connection to ourselves we lost our connection our ability to harness and work with our own life force energy so that we could be fully access our own empowerment our own intuition our own our own healing abilities and if for for religion to get into the the realms of power that they needed to be well they needed to suppress our own accessing of our own power so that's why it's important now for us to really come into this understanding and it's like it's like um science is kind of getting there now without but but the understanding is all in disparate places you know there's no real unifying concept that's bringing our, our scientific understanding of creativity with the philosophical understanding of gnosis so say plato would have spoken of gnosis as a a direct experience of the divine or um you know goes back way into our even early christians speak of gnosis and then our imbus is the same thing so there's 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 no unification of all of these things into one understandable concept um relayed back to people in just a really easy understandable down-to-earth way because fundamentally this is really easy you know you could go into the science of the quantum physics and all of that which I hope I'll be able to do not that I'm any like science is not my forte I'd love to point people in the direction of what's been written um but you could go there if you want but basically it's very simple and it's it's really accessing imbus is just all about coming into the present moment and opening your heart basically yeah 
just to let people know the power of that and the importance of that. Um, so I, I read a little bit about uh, Imbas, and I, I read about, uh, you know, meditation, you know, as part of it, the people, people get into meditation as part of it and get obviously through that um, have been in trance like states through the meditation. Now, that's not just to do with imbas. That's more to do with meditation in general, because obviously that can be achieved um, through it. Um, is meditation a part of it for you? Yeah, I, I'm not. Um, I'm not as disciplined with the meditation as I should be. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I have friends, you know, who are meditation teachers and and uh, daily practitioners. I really wish I could be because I know if I was my imbus would be off the charts um, and my just my level of contentment and everything. I'm working on that. But I, the technique, like one of the techniques that was banned by St. Patrick was actually a ritual whereby the poets used to go into the darkness. And that is a kind of a mechanism for imbus. They say that if, if, if the poet or the practitioner goes into a dark room and engages in sensory deprivation so has no sound has no light has no stimulation of any sort and goes into the darkness and just surrenders to the darkness um that this illumination will just happen after well in in the old uh, writings it says either three or nine nights days and nights um but my understanding and reading of it is that the darkness is a very important part of it, of accessing imbus. And it's, it doesn't have to be a literal immersion into a dark room. Um, if you can, if you can be in a, in the darkness, either in your emotional state, in a state of depression or in, in the physical darkness, like being nighttime, being a dark room and be in the darkness in a sense of presence and in a sense of understanding that, as our ancient ancestors understood that the darkness was the beginning of everything. So in ancient Ireland, twilight was actually the start of the day and Samhain, like November, was the start of the year. And that's because they honoured the darkness. So in our modern life, we kind of run away from the darkness and everything needs to be light filled and whatever but they honored the darkness and it was if you think about it a seed has to be in the depths of the earth to grow um and if you take Newgrange for example which was our monument that was built to harness the light of the rising sun on solstice so the darkest point of our whole year is a few minutes before the rising sun on solstice morning on the 21st of December but it's at that darkest point that the most potent illumination spark of illumination came for our ancestors and that's why in, in my opinion Newgrange was built to harness the first rays of the light the, the light of the rising sun and the light came in through the monument and rested on a stone that had a carving of a certain like a, a the triskel, which is three spirals, which is a symbol for the serpentine life force. So it was like, again, the Newgrange is said to have been a, a, a darkness, like a, a womb, an incubator for the darkness, to honour the darkness, but also 
to symbolically represent the importance of the illumination that can come from the point of deepest dark darkness. So I believe two things then. I believe a state of deep depression can actually be a really fertile place from which creativity can grow like I know for myself you're not going to write anything when you're in the throes of it like you know you're just oh apathy and but the most profound things in my life were written right at the point of when I was emerging from the deepest darkness you know including that letter to the Taoiseach um so I think that's a really useful thing for us all to kind of remember within our mental health that that the darkness is actually necessary and that it can be really helpful if we can surrender to it and exist and accept the darkness with a sense of presence Mm. knowing that it's not an end in itself that that our ancients looked on it as actually a beginning yeah yeah that's interesting actually um the darkness is it's funny i was just thinking about the darkness there on the (laughs) I don't know why. It's just the how dark my face is on this on this thing. And I know my mother keeps going on. Well, she does. She said it once. I always, you know, when you say that about someone, they're always going on about it. They only said it once, really. <laughs> everything. But the light is over there. If I move the light over to here, I'm going to have some severe uh, eye damage. Have you got some? I asked Kira this last week. She was illuminated just like you are. What's going on in front of you? I'm really bad. I don't know any of the tricks with the lights and all. So I just have uh, my window. That's, that's that's the trick that is right there um <laughs> but so we we you you uh touched on the fact um to do with healing and that you could you you helped your mother with it um was there a, a sense of uh I, I suppose pressure on you then like if people started to know about it you know you're saying just people neighbors or whatever especially at 14 did you feel a, a little bit of pressure Oh, for sure. Like, you know, this was so far, even in Ireland back then, again, not only did we not speak about mental health, like we were were still very staunch Catholic around this time. And and, and all of this stuff was witch stuff, like, Mm -hmm. you know, seen as woo woo was evil. Now I knew innately, no way this, this, this just arose for me as a real natural it was love based. It was literally my intention was focus on my love for my mom in through out through my hands. It was nothing more complicated than that. But magic happened, like, you know, or magic happened. And um it felt very big for me. It was like because there was no um there was no dialogue about it. I had no frame of reference, I had no language for it. It was an awful lot of pressure. And I knew innately how natural it was. But then there was, you know, there was the niggling thing of, oh, Jesus, what forces am I working with? Like, you know, so yeah. I, I, I warned my mom to just say nothing. And but she was always such a support. Like she was and she she's really progressive herself. And, and she she obviously she, she was the one that was firsthand feeling the power of it. So when I was 18, the Late Late Show was on and they had these people who were speaking about Reiki uh, on the Late Late Show and, and we were like oh my god there's a language for this like you know for Reiki um, and then she said why don't we go and see if we can get you trained up in this um, and that felt right to me and we found a lovely woman Teresa Collins in Cork who wrote a book again very pioneering at the time 19 in the 1990s and I went and got trained up and 
then I decided again it was still I didn't really tell I, t- I all my friends knew like anyone that were close knew and they all probably felt and experienced it but it was still nothing I'd have to really trust you to 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 to, to tell you or whatever and I, it didn't even occur to me that this could be like that that this is a gift that I could use as a career or more importantly like that this was my purpose you know like I said I I landed in marketing and I liked it and all the rest of it but Mm. there was there was always there was stuckness in it a bit just within my own self and, and I suppose a lack of fulfillment in elements but I never when I was a teenager and in my 20s I just never thought that this was a I didn't want to be seen as a witch or I didn't want to have to deal with the constantly defending myself Mm. or whatever and plus I didn't properly understand it so I was on ever since then I was on a mission to look at the science to look at theological approaches to look at the spirituality and I've been a real nerd since my teenage years reading up everything and I suppose it's probably in the last 10 years that now I feel like I have a real grasp of mm. the science of it, of the uh, practical applications of how to work with it to preserve my own health and to, you know, understand every aspect of it. And I suppose the weight has dissipated of that now. You know, I carried the weight of that all through my life and that prevented me from, you know, going more public or or, or helping more people with it but I always felt a bit I always felt guilty and my mom actually became a healer herself so a year after I did my training she was like seeing seeing how incredible the incredible things that were ha- like miracles like were happening and she said she wanted to go and, and study and she did and she became she went into it so she became an actual oh. healer yeah, so she's been like a hero for 20 years in Leash. Uh, <laughs> like hundreds and thousands of people have come through her doors and she's a healing room and oh my God, like cancer, people with cancer and depression and anxiety and, and like suicide is probably the biggest one and the, mm. the, the most profound. And she's helped, there's not a person that has come through the door that she hasn't helped. She is Again, she's a born healer, an innate healer. And it goes back to my granddad, her dad, who she says his healing hands just used to work magic as well. Um, so now, yeah, because so she was more courageous than me. She didn't need this the science or she didn't mm. need, she was just trusting her gut and she um, was probably more of a pioneer. I was probably more afraid of what people would think or just didn't want to be, defending myself you know and you're quite young as well and and that yeah. that um how do you feel about people and, and i'm i'm talking about the people who are are not being you know they're not being nasty or anything kind of snide about it but they're you know they're questionable maybe they're they're, they're someone who uh doesn't believe in things until they see it or they feel it themselves like yeah. and how do you feel about people you know who who just they're, they're not being you know trying to be a dick or anything but they're just asking the questions like um you're willing to obviously have chats and conversation with people like that i i have no doubt you are um but does it is there still that kind of little bit of pushback from people that just aren't quite able to kind of believe it yeah and that's completely natural i Mm. mean i unless i experienced it i wouldn't um and that's the thing about 
imbus or gnosis versus religion. Imbus is based on personal experience. So, so like the most profound um, successes, I suppose, or miracles that my mom specifically, she'd always say this, the most profound healings actually happen to those people who come because they're just, they've nowhere else to turn or their girlfriend said they have to or else they're going to break up, you know, if they couldn't handle the depression or anxiety and yeah. whatever, and they were forced. And um, it's nearly sometimes useful in a way to have that, I know it always is useful to have that level of skepticism or level of critical awareness or questioning, like it really is, because then it allows for more understanding. But the real thing about this stuff is just experience. So for anyone, you know, I suppose a leap of faith is needed mm. um, and to go in and experience at once. And it's very important that you engage your intuition um, because there, I would be very hesitant and reluctant. You know, I've only really seen, gone to two healers myself in my whole life, as much as I understand about it and mm. believe in it and know about, you know, the power of it. You still need a lot of discernment and it, to place your trust in who, and this is where intuition comes in. You know, obviously, uh, word of mouth is really important and recommendations and, for, you know, and and my mom never advertised. She didn't believe in that. She's, she's like, the right people will be attracted. The people who are right for me and who's right for who I'm right for them. And they always were like, you know, and, and I would say always question, do your research. Like that would give you, a, um, you know, confidence I suppose and and widen your understanding but keep the mind open like yeah. my mind stays closed all around all of those things I don't know where I'd be now I'd have all these gifts that I wouldn't even know what they were and then I'd be grumpy and I wouldn't be able to express myself mm. and it's just really important to keep a really open mind yeah 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 of course um I wanted to talk to you about this is this was just a pure coincidence um I had asked Laura to come on and uh, Laura actually spoke to me about Lyme disease and I told Laura that I had Lyme disease. I'll just get my pathetic little story out of the way first. I got it. Uh, I got it in New York. I had a, I had a, 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 it looked like a bruise on my arm, but it kind of circles all the way around it. And my aunt, uh, my auntie Mia said, you better go get that checked out. And went to the doctor immediately and he said, that's Lyme disease. Here's some tablets. And it was gone away. Now, that was very fortunate that I had Mia there because I did not know what it was before she she said those words. But you've had a far, far more difficult experience with it. You are so lucky. Like, literally, that was a sliding doors moment in your life. Like, <laughs> yeah. you will look back and you will say, like, that moment of your aunt knowing what to do. Mm change the trajectory of your whole life um and thank thank, thank the gods you. and thank whoever yeah. you know yeah um so basically i got um by mosquitoes i think i went oh. i went to uh, yeah i think yeah i think so uh, to thailand uh, in 2008 12 years ago and got i went to on a jungle trek just for a couple of nights um and 
I got bitten head to toe. Um, I'm presuming they're they're mosquitoes. They're probably a mixture of everything. Mm. Head to toe. Um, and it was grand. It was just, yeah, very unattractive for a couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> it was like, grand, I'm in the jungle. What did I expect? But none of my friends got bitten like that. Um, and then didn't think any more about it. And then maybe two years later in work, I was on this big, massive project in work and I started to get really fatigued. Like, and I just put it down to really hardcore project. I was leading this kind of world first thing that we were doing and it was really um, demanding. And I used to have to just uh, I'd put everything into it during the week. And then at the weekends, I would just like, die in the couch and literally my mom had to take over my washing my clothes feeding me all of this at the weekend but the two of us just thought it was the level of of work that I was doing but then that just continued and even when the project finished and everything that was the way of my life then from about 10 years ago on I was able to function in work at times really really difficultly like really like your brain brain fog and and stuff like that was really chronic and I didn't I had to kind of stop my social life because the only way I could function in work was to um rest in the evenings and at the weekends and lost contact with so many of my friends and then it started to get worse and worse and then we were like oh we need to do something here um I need to look into this and and we were we've been trying to look into it for the last maybe six years went to neurologists went to everything and just couldn't find anything wrong you know and and I knew again intuition um I just I knew there was something there was something in my system that wasn't right but I couldn't get to the bottom of it um and then about two years ago then you know, I was living a really fast-paced life. Really, the doctors were like astounded. Like, how, the, how, like people with Lyme basically get bedridden after about two years. But I was commuting from Leash to Dublin, like a three-hour round trip every day. Really fast-paced job, like really demanding job. Um, and I had a baby three years ago, and and really like push pushing myself like really mm. but I just thought the tiredness again was a result of pushing myself but un- underneath I knew there was something more um two years ago then just collapsed all of a sudden then it was like I just can't the body just shut down it says you're not doing anymore I had to go sick from work I thought I'd be going sick for about a few weeks to just regain my strength and go back to the grind mm. so, and then um stayed debilitated for a year like bedridden you know and my family knew they know how much of a fighter I am and they know how much kind of strength and resolve and stuff like that so for them to see me like this they were like shit something is massive here and um got tested for a load of things nothing came back and stayed like that for a year helpless you know really helpless and even my own, I had have the ability to self heal and everything, and and that was and that's probably what kept me through for the ten, got me through for the ten years. But that was even that just wasn't cutting it anymore. And then eventually, um, a friend spoke to me about Lyme disease. That their friend had it. Went to get tested in Ireland. The test came back negative. No, I don't have it. 
for three months and this is lying in my bed again like not able to do anything and then somebody told me about these tests in Germany and said that the the Lyme tests in Ireland have 50% um, false positive and false negative readings so I went and got my bloods done in Germany and I came back and I was feckin riddled with Lyme um, and co-infection so when you have Lyme your your system just uh your immune system gets really suppressed. It's really, it affects every system in your body. It affects your brain. It affects your ability to detoxify everything. And because of that, I had multiple other infections as well. It was like Bartonella. It was like the list as long as your arm. And that's only for what they were testing for. So there's mm. probably a load of other things that, that weren't even tested for. So eventually I I broke down crying and it was like it was better than winning the lotto to actually discover what was wrong with you because so many people were thinking it's it's a mental health thing mm. it's it's in your head it's not real or you're not believed are you hypochondriac my family never did mm. oh my god they were just amazing um but you do that's what you get projected and sometimes you even project that onto yourself then yeah. when moments you know um and yeah, then I, I suppose I was able to start treatment. There's only one doctor in Ireland that treats it because it's, it's a disease. That in, for some reason in Ireland, we are about 50 years behind the rest of the world. In America, they treat, they have, you know, proper treatments. It's, it's accepted. It's, um, but in Ireland is like, it's, it's, it's just not understood. There's a line of thinking that says um, the government are putting a concerted, effort to try and uh, diminish understanding because it will affect tourism because the hotspots are in all of the tourist places now I don't know but there's, it's it's ridiculous you can't get proper treatment like you need to get IV antibiotics for a long period of time to, to really hit the bacteria but in Ireland it's not legal um, and that's why so many people have to go for really expensive treatment in Germany or in in, in America um but i i anyway got in to see dr lambert who is incredible and he's he he's basically putting himself out there as well because the medical establishment don't fully endorse Lyme as an, a, a, yeah. a, a disease and and he kind of he he's a lot of tough battles to face but he treats and he goes over and beyond to treat hundreds of patients like every week on every month on, on for Lyme and he has me on long-term antibiotics now um, and I'm obviously starting to really benefit from that but it can be a long road you know I've, I've been on herbal medication which is incredible for Lyme I've been on that for um, a year I think and, and the long-term antibiotics which are really hard because they're orals they're, it takes longer for them to work um, and very hard on the system but thankfully um, it's we're getting places and it's just you know it's a pity that more people don't know because mm. the difference between you and I like I many people with Lyme have to stay like that forever like bedridden and like I have a child and, and, you know, it's, it's just, it's a hell on earth. And that's not an exaggeration because there's a lot of people suffering on earth now and I don't want to diminish, but that that's the reality for a Lyme patient. And the difference is that because your aunt was literate, Lyme literate, and she knew that a, a rash the you know, the, 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 it's a round rash you get after you're bitten. And if you get onto Antibiotics within 30 days of getting that rash, you won't have a problem for the yeah. rest of your life. 
But if you don't and the Lyme exists and is ravaging your body for years and years, your chances of recovery are slimmer and slimmer. And it's the difference between your life stolen and your life being able to be lived, you know? Like people, like you said, a lot, not a lot of people know what it is. And I've mentioned to a couple of people that I, you know, had it when I was young and I got rid of it straight away. But like it can cause paralysis and stuff. And I I got the... um, the leaflet out of the hospital and when I saw it when it was 18 when I was over and I saw it and I saw these kind of stories about it and I was like geez this was a lot more serious than I thought it was you know like a little bite off a tick so but you're 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 get you're like obviously it's it's been a long road but you're sl- you're slowly kind of starting to see the kind of benefits from the antibiotics you're on now yeah and it's it's not just the antibiotics as Dr Lambert himself says um it's the antibiotics don't work on their own. Like the Lyme bacteria is a highly complex, sophisticated piece of work. They say like tuberculosis is, is its simple, stupid sister. Oh, right, <laughs> like okay. the, um, so it's, and it affects every single system and mechanism in your body. So you have to treat, to medicine conventional medicine alone really can't and doesn't work you have to understand things like supplements and things like energy and again here's where my imbus knowledge of imbus and life force energy you have to understand how that works like yoga um meditation because stress the hormones and the chemistry that stress produces actually activates all of the Lyme bacteria again and and so it's a really like my full-time job now is healing um that's been the case for for two years but I suppose I've really been on the path since I, I understood what I was working with and um I have a huge respect for conventional medicine and I have a huge respect for alternative medicine and <clears throat> I, I kind of get triggered when I hear um either being polarized you know when I hear oh you know conventional medicine is all bad you know I used to kind of be a bit like that myself and and big pharma which I'm pharma yeah yeah that's the the thing and it's so I I, the profiteering and everything just riles me so much but but we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater like you know um so I'm, I'm glad for that learning and I can't wait to be fully healed because I'm you know that's I'm going to campaign I'm going to be an advocate for for Lyme and, and education and healing and everything and the likes of Dr Lambert and other because the thing is Lyme you're so tired you can't yeah can't com- campaign it needs for people who are healed and cured so that'll be my next thing so kind of going off the back of that then what what do you uh what do you like to do in your quiet time so i know you have a small small child as well so that's hard to get the time but if you do get a, a, a an hour here or there what do you like to do reading and writing i should should be meditation and i love like the thing i don't know why when i meditate i get into that I, literally i can access bliss in, in a split second which many people have to work years to try and get there so it's kind of it's a I don't know why I resist it so much do you know because that would really help my healing so anyway sometimes I do meditation but not as much as I should <laughs> uh, and other times it would be music and writing and uh, reading like I have books and and you know 
I, I collect antique books and oh. now it's yeah so it's it's now I can't read because with Lyme you can't you can't it's very hard to focus and everything yeah. so it'd be just like whatever I can absorb on a particular day and it will only be a few pages at a time or whatever you just have to take things in bite-sized chunks yeah yeah so that's yeah that all all good all the good things though to be fair they're all the good things that people like to do in the spare time um Laura, it's been it's been an excellent uh, chat. I've really enjoyed speaking to you, and 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 very informative. Oh, thank you. Hopefully, no, it's, yeah, it's given me it's given me uh, things to go to way to look up and see because I like uh, the whole thing about it. Like with every episode, you know, there's something that might help me or suit me. Even it doesn't have to be necessarily help that suit me. I might suit my lifestyle. So it's important for me to go away and kind of go, well, Imbass is definitely something that I'd be interested in learning about and reading about. So it's been fun uh, learning about that. Um, thanks again for being our 50th guest. That's, uh, you know, you, they can never take that away from you, Laura. Um, <laughs> but but ha- hang around there for, for a minute until I close this out. And I just want to get a picture with you, if that's okay. Yeah, okay. thanks a million, Eric. No, you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, thanks a million to John for uh, me annoying him again this week because of the mess last week. Um, thank you very much, my mum, my dad, my granddad, uh, Jared, and Calvin. That was another leash person there. Um, <laughs> subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, or it's the weekly, weekly, obviously. Uh, it's the same on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, Spotify, Apple, Anchor, Google Podcasts are all the podcast platforms you can listen to on it. Um, thanks to everyone for listening again on uh, this Wednesday morning or whenever you listen to it. Um, and uh, we will see you obviously, obviously next week. You know, close it saying once again, Laura. Thanks a million. Thanks, Derek. Thanks. And we are uh, out for another episode. Uh, take care, everyone. Bye.